you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. As you turn there, I wanted to remind you that if your kids are a part of Kids Fest tonight, I've been told that the kids might get a little wet. So make sure you know for the kids coming to Kids Fest, if they want to maybe wear their swimsuits or something that dries out quickly, I think there's going to be some water games tonight, which they will so enjoy. So we're in Acts chapter 4. Just want to say hi to a friend, Jess Arns and his wife, Melissa, their family. Great to have you guys with us. You guys know Jess served here as an unpaid intern for a couple of years and then went to Georgia where he served as an associate pastor. Now he's back in California up in the Napa Valley area, but they've been hanging out with us uh, this weekend for the Biblical Counseling Conference. Great to see you guys. Thanks for being with us. We're in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and the title of the sermon today is Christian persecution. Christian persecution. Acts chapter 4. Let me read verses 1 through 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Father, we're grateful to read Acts 4, 1 through 12 this morning. We're excited to jump in your word to learn a little bit more about Peter and John and the persecution they faced, and yet their courage, their bravery, And the message that they gave at such a difficult time in their lives that they were unashamed to proclaim Jesus Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And because of that, it changes our lives forever. And we have nothing to hide, but instead we have an incredible message to proclaim in Christ. And so be glorified this morning in our reading, in our preaching, and in how we respond. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have a question for you this morning, and it's just simply this. Have you ever been persecuted for your faith? Have you ever been persecuted? When I was in PA school training to be a physician's assistant, I had the privilege of doing a little bit of training in a mental health hospital where I served uh, there for six weeks as a provider, not as a patient, all right? And so while I was in the hospital, I saw some kind of interesting things happen during those six weeks in mental health, such as one day I got up and got to work, and as soon as I got to work, there was some commotion going on down the hallway, and I heard this man yelling at another man, and he said, I am Jesus Christ. 
And the other man says, no, you're not. I am Jesus Christ. And these guys just went at it like a high school lunchroom fight in the hallway. I had to run down the hallway, bust them up, give them a shot of Haldol, which is like a tranquilizer, and put them back in their rooms. Pretty crazy times in a mental health hospital. While I was there, I also had the opportunity to interview a patient who told me that he was depressed. And as he told me about why he was depressed, I listened to him and tried to be sympathetic. And then I just simply asked him, would it be all right if I were to share with you how you could find your greatest joy in Jesus Christ? And he said, sure, I'd love to hear about that. So I took my time and shared the gospel with him, led him in a sinner's prayer, and he repented. And from what I could tell, he trusted Christ. Just a couple of minutes later, as I was going back to the the room where all the psychiatrists were meeting, having a special uh, gathering that morning to lay out their responsibilities for the day, I reached out to grab the guy's chart, and I was going to write on the chart, he just received Jesus. He can be discharged. I I was like, you know, I was like, man, I was just thinking, this is so cool. And then all of a sudden, that, that guy that I just witnessed to hit me on the back of the head. And he says, who do you think you are to tell me that I got to trust in your Jesus? Don't you ever be preaching your Bible to me. And I'm like, oh, man. You remember this? I'm in a mental health hospital, right? So the psychiatrist grabbed me by the collar, took me into his office, and he says, what in the world did you tell this guy? And I said, I told him he needs Jesus. <laughs> I'm like, and he said, well, the guy's been depressed. We've been working with him for years. And I'm like, and it's not working. The guy has a deeper problem, and I was there honestly to share Christ with him because I asked if he wanted to know about the greatest hope and joy he could ever find. This psychiatrist got so angry that he threatened to have me kicked out of school. He's like, I can't believe you did this. You Christians, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to call the director of your program, and by Monday morning, you're going to be kicked out of this program. And so I apologized for offending him, and, I, and he, you know, you know what, what do you do in that situation? And he just said, hey, look, as long as you're here, you can't use the name of Jesus anymore. And I said, hey, that's fine, but I just know that my heart was never to cause a problem, cause a scene. I didn't hit him over the head with the Bible. I just simply shared my faith with him, thinking that maybe that would help him. And I'm just saying that in the world that we live in, you're going to face persecution. And the question is, is that persecution, what I just mentioned, a couple stories there about what happened to me. Maybe you faced something like that at work or at school or out on the playground or on the ball field or in the dance studio, wherever you work, whatever you do. Is this Christian persecution? You might remember in 2015, there was a horrific video that was circulating on the internet detailing the brutal executions of 21 Egyptian Christians by the Islamic State known as ISIS. You remember seeing part of that video, maybe some of you remember, the terrorist group marched these brave Christians out to the beach and had them kneel down to give them one last chance to recant their Christian faith. Remaining true to their convictions, the Christians would not deny Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and one by one, they were beheaded as they stayed true to the faith. Now, both of these accounts, my conflict with the head psychiatrist and the 20 Christian martyrs that were killed, help frame two important questions about Christian persecution. My experience in the mental health hospital raises the question, can Christians claim to be persecuted any time that they are harshly treated or mistreated? The second question would be from the martyrdom of the Egyptian Christians by ISIS poses this question, should persecution be limited 
to severe actions like imprisonment, the infliction of pain, or even death. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we must keep in mind that Jesus is talking about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. There are plenty of Christians who get written up at work or they get, grad ba- they get bad grades on their papers at school, and it doesn't necessarily mean they're being persecuted. I mean, they might have just really written a really bad paper. Sometimes Christians may need to be confronted for not accomplishing certain objectives at work or for not fulfilling the school requirement as expected. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. When Christians suffer for doing what God forbids... They are not experiencing Christian persecution and must not twist the scripture into an attempt to comfort themselves with the promises that are designed for those who suffer because of their faith in Christ. We must be careful not to minimize persecution, but we also don't want to call everything persecution either. I do not believe that our understanding of Christian persecution should be limited to only extreme situations. The beheadings, the mutilations, the stonings, the imprisonments that are still being carried out against Christians are examples of severe persecution, but the Bible does not limit its definition of persecution to certain levels of severity. Lesser forms of opposition of the followers of Christ are also included. Jesus said in Matthew 5:11, blessed are you when others revile you. And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here Jesus mentions two categories of opposition. To revile or to utter all kinds of evil are both forms of verbal harm. Whereas the word persecution often infers both verbal and possibly physical assaults as well. Christian persecution encompasses both verbal, and it may or may not be physical, when a believer is spoken to mockingly or abusively because of his devotion to Christ, he is at that point experiencing persecution. Granted, it is not as severe as the violence that was carried out against those who may suffer physically because of their faith, but nonetheless, it is real. The same is true for slanderous accusations that are made about believers because of their devotion to Christ. And when we experience such things, Jesus tells us that we should rejoice and be glad. Not because we're suffering, but because our reward will be great in heaven. And this is how they persecuted the prophets before us, so we ought not be surprised. Jesus said in Luke 6, 22 and 23, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In this passage in Luke, Jesus expands the idea of persecution to include even attitudes and dispositions of hatred. 
So Christian persecution can include a wide variety of responses, such as scorn, hatred, ridicule, physical violence, imprisonment, and death. But for such opposition, no matter how mild or how severe, that persecution in a biblical sense should be provoked by the believer's devotion to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And this helps make sense of Paul's statement that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12, and Jesus promised that his followers will face persecution for my sake and for the gospel, Mark 10.29-30. Here's what I'm saying. Every Christian should expect to experience persecution. Not all in the same way, but all for the same reason. And the reason is, is because of your love and your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our passage, in Acts chapter 4 this morning, we're going to see three headings which will outline for us the very beginning of Christian persecution. We'll see how Peter and John were arrested for preaching the resurrection in verses 1 through 4. Then we'll see how they were accused of having no authority, verses 5 through 7. And then in verses 8 through 12, we'll see how through it all they affirmed the power and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Let's look now at our first heading, number one. They were arrested for preaching the resurrection. Verse 1, your first blank, if you're taking notes this morning, says the opposition. The opposition, look at verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, as you know, there was a beggar at the beautiful gate who was lame from birth. And as Peter and John walked by this man, Peter said to him, look at us. And then when the man fixed his gaze on Peter, Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have to you, I Uh, give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And then leaping up, he stood and began to walk and he entered the temple with them, leaping and walking and praising God. What a sight this must have been. And what a beautiful miracle demonstrating God's power. You would have thought that everyone would have been rejoicing for this man's good fortune. But unfortunately, that's not the case. These Jews were upset. They were disturbed. They were unhappy that such a thing would happen and at the temple of all places. And so Peter took advantage of this opportunity where there was some commotion, some interest, a crowd gathering around, and he takes that opportunity to preach the gospel. And Peter cautioned the Jews not to wonder at the miracle itself, but to wonder at the God of the miracle. This is the God of Abraham, Peter said, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, who has glorified his servant Jesus, whom they delivered over to Pilate to be crucified. And Peter told them that they had denied the holy and the righteous one, and they had killed the author of life, whom God had raised from the dead. And it was by faith in Jesus that this man was now in perfect health. And so Peter then gives hope to his listeners by saying that if they repent, if they turn back, that their sins would be blotted out and that it's not too late for them. In fact, 
one day in the future, they would still experience times of refreshing that would come from the presence of the Lord, and that if they were to turn to Christ, he would restore all things about which God had spoken through the prophets long ago. Moses had said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. It was to Abraham and to you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then at the very end of chapter 3, look at the last verse, 26. I'm just giving you some context for what we're looking at in chapter 4. But God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now again, you would think that With a message like this, there would be a significant response. Hopefully there would be a a change of heart and an appreciation of what is going on. But last week, I, I told you that whenever God blesses, Satan also shows up to oppose God's work and often done using religious people to spearhead that resistance. And that is exactly what's going on here in verse 1 with the leaders of the Jewish people. It says, as they were speaking to the people, that's Peter and John, it's the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they come upon them. The priest here were the ordinary priests conducting the evening sacrifice. They were divided into 24 sections and were chosen by lot to serve at a given time. No doubt they had eagerly awaited their opportunity to minister there at the temple, and they're just disturbed that Peter and John had messed their whole service up. And instead of rejoicing at a new and fresh work of God in their midst, they wanted to focus on the rules and the regulations of the Old Testament sacrifice. They were stuck in the past. They were stuck in an old system. They were stuck in their own legalism and in their pride. The captain of the temple guard, mentioned there in verse 1, was the chief of the temple police force, which was composed of Levites. He would have been second in rank only to the high priest, and he was responsible for maintaining order there on the temple grounds. The Romans had given the right to police the temple to the Jews. The Sadducees that are mentioned there in verse 1 were one of the four sects that made up first century Judaism, along with their arch rivals, the Pharisees, and then there's also the Essenes and the Zealots. And even though the Sadducees were smaller in number, they were highly influential. They were the dominant religious and political force in Israel, since the high priest thought that during that period, uh, most of the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees. The Sadducees were mostly aristocratic, wealthy landowners. And the religion of the Sadducees was largely one of social custom and privilege. They believed only in the written law of Moses and the Pentateuch. They didn't give any credence to the rest of the Old Testament. They only held to those first five books. They did not even believe in any resurrection of any body. They didn't believe in any future rewards or in any punishment. They denied the existence of angels and of the spirit world. The Sadducees also rejected predestination and the sovereignty of God, and they believed that man was the master of his own destiny. Well, no wonder the Sadducees were sad, you see. Right? I mean, these guys were the theological liberals of their day who had no hope. They were all wound up in themselves themselves. 
They liked to hear themselves talk. And so they were the first ones to really begin to bring persecution. The Pharisees had been doing it as well, but the Sadducees now, at this point, are really ramping up Christian persecution. And so now that we've learned just a little bit about the opposition there in verse 1, let's look at verse 2 now and discover their annoyance, their annoyance. What's going on with the priest and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees? Well, verse 2 says they're greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees were greatly annoyed. That word annoyed means to be disturbed. It means they were provoked. It means that they were vexed. They were hotter than the Mojave Desert on a midsummer's day. They were more stirred up than a hornet's nest that had just been poked. They were more upset than Samson was when he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. These guys were mad. They were so annoyed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Peter and John were not contradicting Moses. They were not ridiculing Abraham. They were not doing away even with the sacrifice. They were just pointing to a better and lasting sacrifice in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Sadducees didn't want to hear about it. They wanted to stick their nose back in their books and back in their steeped legalism. And they're upset that these Galilean fishermen who had no reputation as teachers, no formal training, no sanction, no credentials, no notoriety, and yet somehow they had gathered a large crowd on their turf in their holy city, and they're now preaching the gospel. Now, please note, the text does not say that they are preaching Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 2 says they're preaching that in Jesus, you can be raised up from the dead. Now, are they preaching the resurrection? Yes. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is in preaching the resurrection, they're now preaching about a personal resurrection that each and every believer in Christ can also experience. The resurrection affects every Christian. The resurrection affects your future. The resurrection guarantees you eternal life. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's a personal resurrection for the believer even when you die. 1 Corinthians 15.42 through 44, so it is written, the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown with a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. That's what Peter and John are preaching, that in Jesus, the resurrection holds true for you. Peter and John are preaching that because Jesus was raised, those who are in Christ will also be raised from the dead. Because he lives, you can live. Because he's alive, you too can have eternal life. And Peter and John are not preaching your best life now. Peter and John are not preaching the power of positive thinking. Peter and John are not preaching that if you have enough faith, that you too can be healed. They are not preaching an ecumenical faith. They are not preaching a feel-good, 
health and wealth, razzle-dazzle, scratch my back, we all have good hearts gospel. That's not what they're preaching. They're preaching heaven or hell. They are preaching in the power of the name of Jesus to change lives, to change hearts, or be destroyed forever. That's what they're preaching. There's only two ways that you can go. It's up or down. And in our world today, people don't like that message. And they didn't like it back then. This is the gospel that they preach. This is the gospel that you and I need to be preaching. And we see that this gospel has a great effect. Verses 3 and 4, the results of their message. Let's look at the effect in verse 3. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Peter and John were arrested and placed in custody. This would prove to be the first time of hundreds and thousands of times that Christians would be arrested for preaching the gospel. Remember, Jesus had said in Luke 21, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And now it's happening to Peter and John. The fact that it was evening, according to verse 3, meant that it was too late to convene the Sanhedrin for a trial that day. Jewish law did not permit trials at night, though they ignored this law when they held illegal trials to condemn our Lord. Peter and John were incarcerated and in prison for exalting the name of Jesus. You will not always get a pat on the back for doing the right thing. Don't expect the opposition to praise you. They may even arrest you. It happened in the first century to Peter and John in Jerusalem. It happened in the 17th century to John Bunyan, uh, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. It's happened recently in our times with the arrest of James Coates, a master's seminary graduate in Canada. Christian persecution is real, people, and it's increasing. There was a Chinese pastor by the name of Samuel Lam who spent 20 years in a communist prison because he refused to quit preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he was asked about persecution and the advance of the gospel, this Chinese pastor said this, quote, in America, the church has experienced prosperity and is growing weaker. But in China, the church has experienced persecution and is growing stronger. Then he said this, quote, persecution is much better than prosperity. What a perspective from a man who was locked up for 20 years for preaching the gospel. And in many ways, I would say that God has blessed the church in America so that we can be a blessing to our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who share our faith but not our freedom. So we're grateful that there is some prosperity, meaning the means to support that kind of work. But if we're not careful, we need to be corrected maybe and challenged. And I love the song by Casting Crowns. Maybe you've heard it. The name of the song is Start Right Here. And here's what it says. We want our coffee in the lobby. We watch our worship on a screen. We got a rock star preacher who won't wake us from our dreams. We want our blessings in our pocket. We keep our missions overseas. But for the hurting in our cities, would we even cross the street? 
but we want to see the heart set free and the tyrants nil, the walls fall down, and our land be healed. But church, if we want to see a change in the world out there, it's got to start right here. It's got to start right now. Lord, I'm starting right here. Lord, I'm starting right now. I love the lyrics of that song because it's just going after that contemporary, popular, prosperous church that's more about sipping on a nice cup of coffee and having a nice screen. By the way, we have both of those in our church. But as you know, that's not what we live for, right? That's not why we're here. That's not what motivates us and gets us up in the morning. It helps you stay awake in the morning if you get up really early. But you know what I'm saying? We don't want to ever become that kind of church. May God help us not to be distracted or preoccupied with the prosperity of the American church. Instead, may God use us to make a difference right here and right now in Santa Clarita and around this world, whatever the cost may be. Not all is lost to Peter and John because verse 4 says, we're talking about the effect, verse 3 is kind of the negative effect, they got arrested, but verse 4 says, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So the word of God cuts like a knife. Some people hate you for it, and they want to arrest you and throw you in prison, and other people are born again. Is it worth being thrown in prison to see people born again? Is it worth offering your life to see people born again and change for all eternity? Are you willing to pay the price? Peter and John were. There's always hope. There's always a faithful remnant. There's always a spark of faith granted to those who believe. There's always the stirring of conviction wherever the gospel is preached. And as has been proven throughout the centuries, persecution led to the expansion of the church. There were many who heard the gospel faithfully preached and God quickened their hearts to believe. Romans 10, 14, and 15, how will God How would they call upon the one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. These people hear Peter and John preach the gospel on that day with beautiful feet. Many are being greatly impacted by the lame man who was healed by the beautiful gate. And what a beautiful thing was happening as we read this number of men came to be about 5,000. That number represents, most commentators say, the cumulative number of men in Jerusalem, in the church there in Jerusalem, who had been saved from Pentecost up to this sermon, which may have happened just a few weeks later. The number is likely double to triple that if you count the women and children. This particular word for men means just males. So if you count all their wives and their women and the kids, this could have easily been 10, 15, 20,000 believers that were there now in Jerusalem. So now that we've seen that Peter and John have been arrested for preaching the gospel, let's now look at our second heading, number two, they are accused of having no authority. Your next blank says the gathering of the authorities. Verses five and six, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. We uh, 
We now have the opposition gathering together to decide what exactly they're going to do with Peter and John. There were rulers who were also called chief priests together with the elders, which were family heads and heads of tribes. There were scribes who were mostly Pharisees together with the Sadducees. This group made up the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of the nation, functioning similarly to a supreme court. It had 71 members, including the high priest himself. This group was made up with Annas, who was known as the high priest emeritus. There was Caiaphas, who was the functioning high priest. We're not sure exactly about who John and Alexander are, as there's no details given, but it is thought that they were prominent members of the high priestly family. This group was the who's who of first century Judaism. And they had put themselves in charge though they were under Roman oversight. I want you to know this morning that these authorities were all man-made. They did not fear God. They did not follow the teachings of the Bible. They were a law unto themselves. They had taken the Bible and changed its meaning and added their own teachings to the point that it was a different religion altogether. There was no mercy extended to a repentant sinner. There was no grace from a loving God in salvation. There was only works and power and man-made laws and an unhealthy adherence to the external parts of the old covenant. Jesus had said about these people in Matthew 23, he said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not participate. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds only to be seen by others. This is a disgrace. The Sanhedrin was an elite group of hypocrites. They were a gathering of antichrists. They were the high court of the devil. And this group, wants to question Peter and John. We see that in your next blank there, the question of authority, verse 7. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power and by what name did you do this? This was the same tactic they had used against Jesus in Matthew 21, 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priest and elders and the people came up to him and he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Furthermore, the Sanhedrin must not have done their homework with Peter and John because they had already said in chapter 3, look at chapter 3, verse 16, they had already said, and his name. By faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter had been preaching that everything they were doing was through the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses had said, you shall listen to this prophet and do whatever he tells you, but instead of listening to Jesus, they had killed the author of life. And by demanding to know what power or in what name the apostles had healed the lame man and were now proclaiming resurrection in Jesus implied that Peter and John were rebels. Since the Sanhedrin had not granted authority to act or teach, they must be revolutionists who were not welcome at the temple with their message. 
Do you know who thinks that they hold authority in America today? It's the politicians and the courts. It's the big business and big pharmaceutical companies. It's Hollywood and the social elites. It's psychiatrists and secular psychologists. It's the universities and the so-called experts. It's the media and cable news. And if your message doesn't match their message, they are going to say, on whose authority are you saying what you're saying? What in the world are your credentials that you could think you could stand up and say something like that? And they will seek to ridicule you and humiliate you. And they will detest you. And they're going to try to ostracize you and avoid you and ignore you. They will try to snub you and shun you and spurn you. They want nothing more than to exclude you, expel you, and excommunicate you from American culture. So what are we going to do? Well, I think we ought to take a note from Peter and John out of their book here and have courage. And I think that we should stand strong in the midst of adversity. And I think that we should respond with zeal and with bravery and with the exact answer that Peter gave. That leads us to our third heading, number three, affirmed the power and exclusivity of Jesus. Your next blank says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, they say again, by what power, what name did you do this? Then Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. So we see here that Peter was ready. He was ready for this moment. He had an answer prepared, and it was down deep in his heart. Peter was born for this moment, and he did not disappoint. Peter did not give in. Peter did not tuck his tail and run. Verse 8 says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This means that he was controlled by the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was completely full of the breath of the Almighty, the Counselor and the Comforter, the Spirit of might and glory and grace and knowledge and truth and understanding and wisdom and the Spirit of revelation. And just as Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2, so is he filled here. And you also, believer, are filled with the Holy Spirit and this occurs when you were saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it occurs as you're walking in obedience to the word and the spirit. Peter was not acting in some awkward, sensational way. And he was not demanding this or that or claiming this or that. When he was filled with the Spirit, please note, he was not writhing on the ground, and he was not shaking uncontrollably, and he was not stomping, and he was not snorting, and he was not whooping. I grew up in a church where I saw all of that, and I'm like, huh, maybe that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, because that's what I see sometimes going on today. That's not how Peter was. He was poised. He was ready. He was ready to combat the thinking and the sinful actions of those who had crucified Christ. And just as Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, God's called us to be filled in the same way. Peter stood strong, and he faced the rulers of the people and the elders, and he gave his defense, and Peter didn't flinch, and he didn't falter. It's almost hard to believe that this was the same man who ran away from the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the same man who had denied Christ three times. It's the same man who said, I'm going to go back fishing. 
But that's what happens when you've been born again. You struggle, you stumble, and you get back up. And when you yield your life, every part of you to the Holy Spirit, he brings about a change in you that you could never elicit in yourself. And he radically transforms you. And he gives you peace. And he gives you courage. And he helps strengthen you and equip you for every good work. Yielding to the Holy Spirit's control releases power in your life. And this principle is so foundational. Yieldedness to the Holy Spirit is the key to successfully handling persecution. And because Peter was spirit-filled, persecution simply drove him closer to the Lord and broadened his ministry. And I believe it is precisely the lack of being truly filled with the Holy Spirit that's killing the church today. The church has become like a chameleon. The church is changing its doctrinal statements to be more politically correct. The church is being whitewashed by the world And when the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, we stand strong. That's what God's called us to do. Not only was Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, but their next blank says he made a plain and simple argument. Verse 9, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed. So notice in verse 9, Peter doesn't beat around the bush. Peter doesn't give a high and lofty argument. Peter doesn't avoid the question. Instead, Peter hits it right down the middle. And Peter says, listen, if we're being examined today, or it could be translated if you have an NASB before you, if we're on trial today, make no doubt about it, Peter and John are indeed on trial. They have been arrested. They are in custody. And now they have come before the Sanhedrin court. And Peter says, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed that we've done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, in other words, Peter is saying, let me get this straight. We are being questioned, we're being examined, we are on trial today for doing a good deed. We're on trial for healing a cripple. It's for the healing of the lame man, because this man is now able to walk. That's why we're here. Peter and John did not break the law. They did not defy the authorities. They did not commit any crime. But my friends, that is exactly what this world is coming to. Christian schools are being attacked for operating on Christian principles. Churches are being threatened for preaching on sin and the good news of Jesus Christ. Christian adoption agencies are being defunded for trying to put orphans in Christian homes. Christian bakers are being sued for their stance on biblical marriage. Christian photographers are also being sued for not taking pictures at a same-sex wedding. Christians used to be respected in America, and now they are rejected. And for what? Why is the Christian community rejected? Is it for rioting? Is it for looting? Is it for drug and alcohol-related crime? Is it for vandalism and the destruction of property? No. Christians are being rejected for doing good deeds and for preaching the good news. 
But we shouldn't be surprised. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised, dear church. Don't be complaining, dear church. Don't be sinfully angry and bitter, dear church. Let's make sure that we're filled with the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And yes, we will fight. And we will stand firm. And we will not be overcome. And just make sure that when you're persecuted, though, that you're persecuted for lifting high the name of Jesus Christ and not for your own agenda. Then comes the clincher, verses 10 through 12. Peter and John proclaim salvation through Jesus Christ. Let it be known to you, to all of you, he says in verse 10, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. Peter here is proclaiming salvation through Jesus Christ. And please note in verse 10 that the gospel goes out to everybody. Peter says, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel. This message has no bounds. This gospel has no limits. It is for all of Israel and, yea, for the whole world. Do you not know by whose authority we did this? It was by a man, Peter says, named Jesus. He is the Christ, and he was from Nazareth. It wasn't the name of Abraham. It wasn't the name of Moses. It wasn't in the name of David. It was in the name of a real man. Jesus, who was the Christ, the Messiah, and he was from Nazareth. Every time that Jesus' hometown of Nazareth is mentioned, it's just making it crystal clear of who we're talking about. We're talking about a real man, Jesus Christ, who grew up in Nazareth. Yes, he's born in Bethlehem, but Matthew 2.23 tells us that he grew up in Nazareth. So Peter is saying, this is the Jesus whom you crucified. And one of the biggest barriers to the Sanhedrin's acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah was the fact that he was condemned to death and then crucified. How could a man sent from God die at the hands of angry men? That did not fit their conception of a Messiah as a political and military deliverer. And as he had done on the day of Pentecost, Peter turned to the Old Testament scriptures in order to build his case. And so in verse 11, this Jesus, now he's digging into the Old Testament, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus had already used this verse himself when confronting the Pharisees and had quoted from the same Old Testament passage when he said, have you not read this from Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The builders here is a reference to the Jews. They were God's chosen people. They were supposed to build a community of faith. They literally built the Old Testament temple, which was true of any building, that when you built a building like that, they would take a stone, a special stone that was not hewn or cut 
by a stonemason. It was to represent purity and something that only God could give. And you would take that stone and you would set it at the corner of the foundation of your new building. And it would be that, by that stone that you would set a plumb line to the left and to the right to make a, maybe a 90 degree angle as any builder might want to do to make sure that that structure would be sound and complete. And so here comes the stone. It's Jesus. And the builders pick up the stone who's Jesus and they say, we don't like it. We don't like the way this stone feels, the way it looks. And we're going to take this stone and we're just going to cast it aside. We're going to throw this stone away because we don't like it. We'll go find something else. And that is, my friends, the cornerstone. Jesus is that stone that the builders, these Jews, have rejected. But now we're reading here that this stone is to become the cornerstone. It's Jesus Christ. And although they had rejected Jesus, God had made Jesus the very cornerstone through his resurrection and his exaltation. God gave Jesus the place of preeminence. Jesus, the cornerstone of God's spiritual temple, the church, is who we're to look to. Ephesians 2, 20 and 21 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then we read in verse 12, and it couldn't be any more clear than this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a clear, direct truth that cannot be denied, diverted, or diluted. And this verse clearly teaches the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. You can only be saved in Christ alone. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name. There is no other system. There is no other religion that can bring saving grace into your life. Hinduism can't save you. Buddhism can't save you. Islam can't save you. The Jewish faith and the Old Covenant can't save you. Mormonism can't save you. Roman Catholicism that holds to a works-based system of justification can't save you. Being a Jehovah Witness can't save you. Being a Seventh-day Adventist can't save you. Being a Baptist can't save you. You've got to be a Christian in Christ. It's in him alone. And that was true for the Jews of that day who heard this message from Peter and John, and that's true for us today. The religion of Christianity is not pluralistic. It is not many roads lead to Rome. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. You either follow his word or you don't. And it's not about my opinion versus your opinion. It's not about my culture versus your culture. It's not about my experiences versus your experiences. It's not about my way versus your way, my truth versus your truth. It's about Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out to find pasture. The exclusivity of Christianity goes against the grain of our pluralistic society. In 1959, there was a chapel built at the North Pole right over something else. 
Santa Claus land. I'm just kidding. Uh, there was a chapel built on the North Pole, 1959, by the men of the Operation Deep Freeze. The little church building contained an altar on which hung a picture of Jesus, a crucifix, a star of David, and a lotus leaf representing Buddha. On the wall of the chapel was an inscription that read, quote, Now it can be said that the earth turns on the point of faith. This shows a typified popular view that all faiths lead upward. Nothing could be more further from the truth. So as Christians, we must proclaim an exclusive message in an inclusive age. Because of our commitment to the truth of the gospel, we will often be accused of being narrow-minded, arrogant, and filled with hate. Many paths, it is said, lead to the top of the mountain of religious enlightenment. How dare we insist that Christ is the only true God? In reality, though, there are only two paths. There is the broad way of many faiths that lead to destruction, and there is the narrow way of faith in Jesus that leads to eternal life. And sadly, the Sanhedrin and all who followed after them were on the broad road to hell. Which path are you on this morning? If you're on the path that leads to Christ and to eternal life, then will you at some point be persecuted? Are you ready? Are you prepared? It may be a scowl. It may be a stripe on your back. It may be a fine or imprisonment, or it may cost you your life. But never forget the words of our Lord, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're here today and you want to trust Christ as your Savior, at the end of our service, we'll have a couple by the back door there who would love to talk with you about how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't be mad. Don't be angry. Be humbled this morning through the word of God and see the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ who opens up his arms to all who would come to him by faith. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with any area of your life, this same couple, we have many that will be available to pray with you this morning. It's our joy to serve you in any way that we can. May God bless us as we face Christian persecution. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your word and just to reflect on this incredible story, this true narrative of Acts 4, to consider Peter and John who had committed no crime and yet were arrested and thrown in jail for a good deed done to a sick man. Christians have been arrested for much less. I pray that we would be ready, that we would be bold as a lion, that we would be humble that we would be mindful of the fact that you've never blessed us to the degree that we wouldn't face persecution. Sometimes our blessing is in the persecution. Sometimes the pain produces in us the perseverance that you desire. I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us courage and a boldness in these times to preach this message of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved except the name of Jesus. 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen.